0: So, hey, if you're a guest here this morning, so glad to have you here. My name's Mark, one of the pastors, and uh, we are working through one of the Gospels this school year. It's the Gospel of Luke. And uh, to get into our uh, teaching today, I want you to think about this question. How old were you when you were first introduced to guilt? Guilt. Yeah, so you're chuckling just like the earlier service, just like last night's. So why do we chuckle? Because we have stories. So I don't know when the first time was. This is the one I could remember. Steve Ward and I, neighbors, we're like four or five. And we must have been bored because we needed an adventure. And the adventure was, let's grab a pack of matches, some newspapers, some sticks, and let's go to the parking lot behind my house, the high-low parking lot, where there's a knee-high concrete wall that went all the way around the perimeter. That Let's go to the back corner where nobody can see us, and it's kind of sheltered from the wind, and let's build our little campfire. Let's burn something the paper and it just it was good it was all pretty legit you know and so we took our matches and we got our newspaper and we got the sticks and we went back to the corner before we knew it we actually had a pretty cool fire that was rising now above the knee-high wall and you know and a crowd began, uh, began to kind of surround us. In fact, men in uniform came, and they showed up in their, in their squad cars. And all of a sudden, I realized this wasn't just a fun thing. This was like a bad thing. And I had these feelings, like, oh, my word, what have I done? I was introduced to guilt right then and there as a four or five-year-old. And I remember so well, like it was yesterday, that I dug into my pockets when he said, can you give me the matches? And I'm digging in my pockets for my matchbook, and I, and I realized I had a pocket knife in there too. And so I pulled them both out, and I said in a quivering voice, do you want my pocket knife too, officer? And we laugh. We chuckle about the first time we were introduced to guilt. And then we get a little older and it didn't take that long until we realize, wow, this guilt thing, it's not so funny. It's, it's like hard. And so what do you do with that? Are you there? Are there things that you feel bad about, things that you're involved with today? You go, man, I, I, I don't feel good about that. How, how do you work through that? Well, grab your Bible, because we're going to talk about the temptation of Christ and how he's our hope when we're wrestling with the realities that we've fallen into temptation. We're dealing with those feelings, all right? So here's the tricky thing about this passage as you're turning to Luke chapter 4. By the way... So some of you have just recently joined us and you're starting to get it that we love the Bible. We teach the Bible, trying to figure out what it says so we can live our life by it, believing it's God's word. It's true. Um, we teach out of the NIV, which is the new international version if you're looking to get a Bible. Um, there's Bibles that if you don't have one, just go back to Connecting Point today. We'll give you a free Bible. You should also know you can download through Version. Uh, on your smartphones and your tablets, a copy of the Bible. It's great to just have it with you. I love reading the Bible on my phone. So here's the tricky thing about chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. We're going to be studying the encounter that Jesus has with the devil over a 40-day period where he's continually tempted. And we're going to have three of those temptations recorded. And each time, he answers the temptation with a quotation that takes us back to a book called Deuteronomy that is rooted in some real history that is written about in Exodus. So Luke to Deuteronomy to Exodus. It's a little complicated. So what I need to do is kind of give you backstory so we can figure out not only what Jesus said, but what it means and what it means for us today. So backstory, the book of Exodus, see the word exit when you see Exodus, okay? It's the exit of what? God's people from slavery in Egypt to the promised land, to this place of freedom, to being Pharaoh's slaves, to being the people of God who point other people to God. So that's the backdrop, big picture, God's people moving out of Egypt into the promised land. On their way, they find themselves in the wilderness, and it's a hard place for them. They run out of food and water, and they're really struggling with trusting God and really believing his promises that he's going to take them to this land that's flowing with milk and honey to this better place. Because it was a hard place. And in the midst of that journey, what happened was, is they said, God, we're starving here in the wilderness, and our kids are starving, and there's like over a million people. It's a big deal. And they're going, you know what? It's great that we're your children, and it's great that we're free, but we're ready to cash in on that and head back to Egypt. Because, man, we need some food. And we're really missing the barbecue of Egypt anyways. We need to get back to that good food. And there was so much of it that we never hungered. And we're ready to just go back to Egypt. We're ready to go back. So God provides manna. It's this bread from heaven that's not like anything they've ever seen before. In fact, the word manna means what is it? So they didn't know. So they just called it, what is it? I don't know if you've ever eaten what is it before, but you could call it manna now, okay? So what is it? It's manna. We don't know. We've never seen it before. Where does it come from? It comes from heaven. And it kind of formed on the the ground every morning like the dew, and they would gather it up, and it was like a sweet wafer, the Bible says. And And it would last for the day. The sun would burn it off, and if they gathered more than the day, it would spoil. So just enough for today. And then on the sixth day, Double portion because they weren't to gather it up on the seventh day, the day of rest. So there was manna, but then they got sick of manna. I mean, how much manna can you have? You got manna burgers, you got manna muffins, you got manna cakes, you got manna everything. And there's a point where you go, well, I need something beside manna. Hello, and God says, All right, I'll give you some meat. You want meat? I'll give you meat. So in the morning it was manna, and then in the night it was quail. And so they had all of this, but you know it was still hard. It was still hard. Sometimes they didn't have water and they cried out to God, we're gonna die, we're gonna die. It was really hard when the spies came back. There was one spy from each of the tribes that went into the promised land. They snuck in to scout it out. When they came back, they said, you know what, sure enough, it is a land of plenty. Man, there's some really unbelievable crops and produce there. They even brought back some samples. But let me tell you the rest of the story, they said. The dudes are big. They're gonna kill us. They're gonna do like this. I mean, we look like little ants. They're giants, and their walled cities are huge. There is no way we're going to walk in there and take that land. There's no way. We're going to die. This is a death march. Don't do it. It'd be better to die in the wilderness. So here they are in the wilderness. They hear God's word. I'm your God. I'm going to take care of you. I've already bolted you out of Egypt. I've crossed you through the Red Sea. And I am going to take you into that promised land. And then they hear the word of the 10 spies, because 10 of the 12 have this majority report that says, we're going to die. We're going to get crushed. It is going to be really, really bad. And they go, God's word, my friend's words. I think I'm voting for the friends. Rather die in the wilderness. So here's what happens. This gets us from Exodus to Deuteronomy. God says, okay, you want to die in the wilderness? You're not going to trust me. You're going to take each other's words for it. You want to do life without me? You, you want to die in the wilderness, then that's exactly what's going to happen. You're going to die in the wilderness. And God said, everybody over the age of 20 is going to die in the wilderness. And you are going to circle this wilderness for 40 years until the last person dies. And that's exactly what happened. And that's where we're at in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuter means second. Nominee, that's from the Greek word meaning law. It's the second giving of the law. It's the people of God that are on the footst- the front door of the promised land. And they're ready to cross in. And God's saying, let's just go over it again. This covenant relationship with it we're in. I'm your God. I want you to be my people. You can trust me. Here's what I'm going to do for you. Here's what I'm asking from you, that you trust me, that you take me at your word, that you obey my commands, and that you believe the promises. They're renewing the covenant. They're getting ready to go in. And as they're going ready to go in, he's going to talk about life in the promised land, and he's going to talk about the mistakes of the past. All right? So that's the backstory. We go from Luke 4... To Deuteronomy, which is 40 years after Exodus, when they really messed up in the wilderness. Great. Now we're ready to go. So, chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. So he's in the wilderness, having left the Jordan. Go back to chapter three. What was going on at the Jordan? Well, that's just where Jesus got baptized, right? So John's baptizing, calling people to get right with God, to get ready for Jesus. And Jesus says, John, baptize me. John says, No way, I can't baptize you. Actually, that's not in Luke's account, but it's in the other gospel accounts. Jesus says, No, really, I want you to baptize me. John's baptizing people for the repentance of to repent, for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus doesn't need sins forgiven, but he's identifying with us in the baptism for the sins that he would die for on the cross, ours, not his. At the baptism, remember what happened. The dove, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove on Jesus. The heavens open up and the voice from heaven, God the Father says, this is my son whom I love. In him, I'm well pleased. The chapter ends with a list of 75 names. That's chapter 3. If I were to read them right now, you'd laugh. You'd laugh at all the ones I mispronounced, all the names you could have named your kids and didn't, and go, why is this in here? And all of a sudden, you realize why this is in here because the genealogy ends, Jesus' genealogy ends in verse 38 with these words. He's the son of Adam, he's fully human, and he's the son of God. Now, he's in the wilderness now, led by the Spirit, filled with the Spirit. And having just heard that voice from heaven, Theophilus is reading about this account, having just read about his genealogy, son of Adam, son of God, Jesus now hears these words from Satan. It's kind of like, prove it. Verse 3, the devil said to him, if you're the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. That's Deuteronomy 8.3. The devil led him to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I'll give you all their authority and splendor. It's been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. When the devil had finished all the tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Now, we're going to look at the temptation, Jesus' response, and then we're going to go back to the context to help us understand the meaning for what Jesus was saying then and for what it means for us today. And so, before we get to temptation one, let's just note a couple things. He's full of the Spirit, and this is true of him at the age of 30. He's 30. Chapter 3, 23 says, now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. 30. What do we know about his first 30 years? About his humble beginnings, right? Born in a stable, laid in a manger, to poor parents who couldn't afford a lamb, just just some doves. He got lost in the temple when he was 12. That's what we know. We don't know anything about him. Not that much, right? Not that much. It's pretty interesting. I mean, I would have expected by now the Son of God would have made, you know, Jerusalem Times Man of the Year. (laughs) Wouldn't have you expected he was going to be one of the emerging leaders within the nation of Israel? He would have made that top 100? It's just obscurity. It's so interesting that the one, that the Bible says when he returns again, every knee will know who he is. Every tongue will confess who he is, that he is Lord. And when he shows up, this one who has always existed, this one who did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, he came in obscurity, in humility, was born into poverty, and he's going down. When everything in our culture says, make a name for yourself, go up, he's a different kind of king he's a different kind of savior it's good to note that really good to note that it's good to remember that as we call ourselves followers of God what it means to go up in God's eyes is a little different it's like a lot different than the world we live in here's another thing to note he's led by the spirit he's full of the spirit What does it mean that you're filled with the Spirit? Well, in Ephesians 5.18, it says it's like being controlled by alcohol. Don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. So when you're full of the Spirit, you're controlled by the Spirit. And when you're full of the Spirit, you live for the honor of God. You're moving towards your relationship with the Father. And that's what we see in Jesus. When you're full of the Spirit, you're full of the Word of the Spirit, the Word of God, right? That's what we see. What's surprising, though, is a man who is called the Son of God, loved by God, living a life pleasing to God, is follow the Spirit, and the Spirit leads him to the wilderness. And by the way, the wilderness isn't, and so God said, it's time for a camping trip, son. We're going camping. We're going to the wilderness. Great, I love camping. It's not what the wilderness is about in the Bible. It's not what the wilderness was for Jesus those 40 days. It was a hard place. Some of you right now, are in a wilderness. It's a hard place. When we get to a hard place, we're pretty convinced I must have really messed up. How did I get here? This is like God teaching me a lesson. How many times have I heard someone in the wilderness say, "I just want to know what God's trying to teach me so I can get on with my life." Meaning, I want to get out of the wilderness. This is hard. What did I do wrong? Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to us? I don't deserve this. What's going on? It's really good to remember that the Son of God, loved by the Father, whose life was pleasing to the Father, filled with the Spirit of God, is led into a hard place. Not because he did anything wrong. And here's what I know. Wildernesses are hard places. But God does good good things in those places. Good and hard go together with God. And then there isn't anybody significantly used in the Bible who didn't get prepared for that leadership role without a wilderness experience. Moses has it. David has it. A lot of the prophets have it. (laughs) The godly women and men that God has used over the centuries are people that he prepared. The wilderness is a preparation time as it's a testing time. And with the test that reveals the nature of our hearts is the opportunity to grow strong. But it's, it's, uh, it's a scary place because you could move away from God in that. So he's in the wilderness led by the Spirit. I wasn't expecting that. I wasn't expecting that. All right, so here we go. First temptation. It's pretty simple. Jesus, it's been 40 days. We know that you can't go very long without water. We know without bread, about 40 days without food. You know, that's about it. Jesus, you're really hungry. You're feeling like you're going to die because you're physically going to die. And so turn the stone. Tell the stone to become bread. It's pretty simple. Satisfy your cravings, sustain your life right now. But he starts the temptation with the phrase that comes up twice. If you are the son of God, that connects us back to the story. Because every, every part of the story right now in the first three chapters has been, He's, he is the son of God. That's what the angels have been saying. That's what Elizabeth's been saying. That's what Simeon and Anna said in the temple. That's what the, the angels said to the shepherds. That's what the voice from heaven said. That's what Jesus himself said when he was 12 and said, this is my father's house. He's saying, I'm, I'm God's son. And, and so he's connecting that. Oh, are you really? Are you really the son of God? Are you really loved? Are you really being cared for by this, by this father of yours? Prove it. Prove it. Prove it. Prove it. Prove it. Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone. At this point you go, I think I get it. I'm not really sure. Is this really about bread? Is it more than that? It's more than that. Bread was like really a great starting place because he was feeling it. I've talked to friends who've gone 10 days fasting. I said, actually feeling pretty good. You don't feel pretty good at 40 days. It's more than bread though. How do I know that? How do we know that? Because we're going to chase it back. Jesus says, It is written, man does not live by bread alone. Well, what's the context of that? The context of that in, in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, is the manna. So go back to Deuteronomy chapter 8, or you can see it up on the screen, and we'll just read it. Remember now, this is 40 years after God led them into the wilderness. They've all died, and they're looking back. Remember? How the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. Would you take out of his word? He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known. It was like bread you've never had before. Nobody knew about this kind of bread. To teach you, the manna was about teaching you that Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So it looks like this is about bread. It looks like it's about food, but the context said, no, manna wasn't a lesson about food and bread and where you can get your best caloric value here in the wilderness. It was all about the word of God. Man doesn't live by bread alone. Man lives on every word of God. Who are the people that died in the wilderness over 40 years? The people who had food that God miraculously supplied but didn't take out at his word and so they died. When did death enter the, the garden of Eden? When did death enter in? When Adam and Eve ran out of food? No, they had everything they needed, right? But when they doubted God's word... His word that says, look, you get everything but you can't take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The day you eat it, you'll die. They doubted God's word. They disobeyed his clear command because they didn't think God was good. Satan convinced them that he was holding back and death enters in when you cut yourself off from the word because Moses reminds us in Deuteronomy 32 that God's word is not a trivial thing. It's not an idle thing. It's not an empty thing. It's not, you know, it's not celery, Hello, celery. How many calories are in celery? It's not celery. It's your life. It's your life. So we think he's being tempted with bread. We think this is about his meeting his physical need. It's about, is he going to take God at his word? Is he going to believe that he is who the father says he is? God's son, who's loved, and what he's doing is pleasing to him. Is he going to believe that God really cares for him in the midst of a hard place where he feels physically even his life ebbing away? Is he going to trust God's word? Or is he going to live for his gut, for his stomach? That's what it's about. It's not about bread. It's about the word. It's not about craving for food. It's about will he crave to do God's will? Jesus said, it is written. It is written. In fact, he keeps saying that. It is written. It is written. It is said. Isn't that interesting? That the one who's called the word of God who tells us exactly what God is like, the one who is the power behind creation. John 1 connects Genesis 1 when it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. Genesis 1, all things came into existence through him. Oh, so when God said, let there be light, the power behind God's word was Christ bringing life out of nothing, this universe out of nothing. This one who is the word of God, whose word brings life. Isn't it interesting that when he's tempted, he says, well, since I am the way, the truth and the life, let me tell you what I think. Think about what you just said. Write this down, Satan. He didn't do that. He quoted from the Old Testament scriptures from his Bible. That's how he dealt with it. Because it's the truth of God's word revealed to us, passed on to us in God's providence that cuts through the lies of Satan that offers us a better life today but actually separates us from the God who gives life. He says, nope. I'm not doing it. I don't live. My life is more than food. And the greatest thing that I crave is to do God's will. And I am not going to do some great act to prove to you or myself who I am. And I'm not going to take care of my need right now and act independently of God. God led me in this place. Suffering and hunger are part of his will right now. And I'm going to submit to that. Israel, though, had reduced life to food and drink. I don't have any. So let's go back to when we got it. What did Jesus say to his disciples when they came back? John chapter 4, he'd been hanging out that day at the well with the woman there, the Samaritan. They couldn't believe he was talking to her. They went off and they went for some Arby's, whatever they did. They got some food. They came back. He's still there. Her life has been transformed. She's starting to bring people back from her neighbor from her neighboring village. And they look at Jesus and they realize, you know, he's got to be hungry. Maybe he looked kind of gaunt. I don't know. They said, hey, master, here, we'll get you some food. And Jesus said, well, I've got food that you don't know about. Then they looked at each other and said, did somebody bring him? Like, did he call in Jimmy John's or something? <laughs> he said, I got food that you don't know about. My food, listen to what he says. My food, what sustains me in life is to do God's will, to take God at his word. That is life. Moses says, this isn't an idle word. This isn't an idle word. This word is our life. And you know what? I'm just wondering if the Bible is the main course for us or it's just like a supplement. I just need need like a verse today, like my multivitamin. I wonder if we're going. I mean, I like the Bible. It's kind of like appetizers. I love appetizers, but it's kind of the setup. I got something more. I wonder if, honestly, we go. It's it's kind of more like garnish. It's pretty, but it's pretty useless. I mean, it looks nice on the plate, but we don't usually eat garnish. We're not supposed to, I don't think. It's just garnish, or is it actually? Is it the main deal? Is it the main course? Jesus says this is the main course. This is what sustains my life. I wonder if some of us, if we're honest, go, hmm. Maybe it's this whole matter of not believing who God says I am that's the problem. Maybe that's why I'm a workaholic. Maybe that's why I'm trying to be the best mother in America. Maybe that I'm so distraught about what hasn't happened in the life of people that are really important to me. Maybe that's why I want to be the best student. Maybe that's why I want to be the best athlete. Maybe that's why I want to make the most money because I I, I need to prove to myself and others around me, maybe there's some haunting voices of the past that says you'll never amount to anything. You got to prove it because God's word isn't enough. Jesus didn't do that through faith in Christ man we can be delivered from that I wonder though if that's driving a lot of us right now because I'm not secure in terms of who I am I don't think what God says about me is really much more than parsley on the plate second temptation pretty simple bow down Here's what I'm going to give you. It's kind of a promise. Oh, the enemy and temptation is filled with trumped up promises that they can't deliver on. And the promise was, look, you bow down, and here's what you get. You get the kingdoms today, all the power that goes with it, the authority that goes with it, the splendor, the glory of it all, that all the kingdoms are yours today. Jesus says, it is written, should worship the Lord and serve him only. It goes back to Deuteronomy 6. What's that passage about? Deuteronomy chapter 6. This time, Moses looking forward. The manna was back. Chapter 6, he's looking forward. You're gonna get into the promised land. Here's what you're gonna find you're gonna find some sweet real estate. You guys are gonna be living in some cool houses. And just don't forget, you didn't build those houses. You didn't buy those houses, you moved in because God moved the enemy out. And by the way, when you draw the water from the well, don't forget, you never dug that well. And when you're drinking the great wine from the grapes, don't forget, you didn't plant that vineyard. Because here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna eat and you're gonna be satisfied. You're gonna reduce life to the physical. And you're gonna go, man, it is sweet, it is good. I've got everything I need. He says, in times of success, be careful. Because you're going to eat, you're going to be satisfied, and here's what's going to happen if you're not careful. You're going to forget God. What does that mean? You're going to functionally become an atheist. You're going to live as if this is all the stuff that you've done, that you can take care of yourself, that you don't need God. You're going to forget God, and you're going to turn to other gods, and you're going to worship them and serve them. And in the midst of that, he says to the people of God, as you move to that place that's full of God's blessing... Don't forget God. Don't worship and serve other gods. Worship and serve the Lord, your God. Fear him. Serve him. Worship him only. That's where Jesus is going. That's where Jesus is going. So what was the offer? Well, the offer is this, Jesus. We both know God's plan for you. He's laid out this itinerary. It's a three-year journey. It's going to be hard, uphill all the time. It's going to be humbling. It's going to be humiliating. It's going to be frustrating as your own followers will betray you and deny you. And it's going to lead you to a place of great suffering. You're suffering now, and this thing only leads to more suffering on the cross. I'm telling you, you can get all that you want and deserve today Just take the shortcut. Just concede. It's a small concession. A little nod, a little bow today, and you get the whole shooting match. I'll give you it all. That's really interesting that number one, Satan is, um, is, is offering him this shortcut that could get where he's actually going to be the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's he's honest. He's going to get there. It's a matter of timing. It's a matter of this isn't God's will, but I've got a better way. Here's God's itinerary. Man, it's hard. I'm giving you, this is a sweet, this is like going to the Bahamas or the Caribbean. I mean, I'm gonna jet you down there fast. You're gonna be in, on the beach and you're gonna have everything you've ever wanted. It's just gonna be awesome. All you need to do is a little concession here and there's a big payoff, big payoff. And Jesus says, no, I'm not gonna go there. I'm not gonna go there. I wonder how many of our regrets are tied to small concessions. I wonder how many hard places that we're in right now are result of us going, that does look like a good shortcut. Jesus knew small concessions would only lead to big regrets and that the shortcut was really a dead end. It would be game over. And so he refused because of his love for the Father, his relationship with the Father. Now, we were made to worship, all of us. I don't know if you realize that. All of us are made to worship, created in the image of God. We're made to worship. You're going to worship something. And the question is, are we worshiping things right now other than God for personal gain? Because that was a temptation, Worship me for personal gain. Take the shortcut to get what you deserve. And I actually just realized that I could worship God, kind of it's trumped up worship and it's God not who he is in the Bible, but I actually could have this sense of I'm worshiping God for personal gain because of what I think he's going to do for me. God's going to do a lot of things for me. But the prize of God is God, not what he does for me. What am I worshiping? Is there anything I'm worshiping other than God? Am I even worshiping God for personal gain? Is there a shortcut I'm taking? Is there a concession I'm making? Third temptation. This one is, starts again, if you're the son of God, prove it. Jump. Jump. Takes him to the height of the temple and he says... Jump. And then he gives him a Bible verse why he should jump. It's like, I wasn't expecting that. Satan's tempting Jesus to do something that would be not trusting God, and he uses a Bible verse to get him to do that. Like, wow. That is a a very clever enemy that we have that would use God's word to twist us to actually do something that isn't God's will. And we should note that. We should note that. So the Bible verse he quotes is in, in Psalm 91, verses 1 and 11 and 12, and basically, he takes a principle and turns it into a promise. A principle is generally true, a promise is always true for all people all the time. He takes a principle that is true and will be true for all people at the right time, not today, but in the future, and says, "You can expect it today." And he uses it to get Jesus to doubt that God really cared for him. He didn't really love you. And Jesus says, it is written, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to a test. And when we go back to Deuteronomy 6.13, which takes us back to Exodus 17, we find out that it's referencing a time when they got the manna and they had the quail, they ran out of water, and they said, Moses! Moses! They were grumbling and complaining. Come on, we're going to die here. Our kids are dying of thirst. We need water. And they said, it says, and there's this nice little phrase that helps us understand what's going on here in Luke 4. In, in Exodus 17, they said, is God among us? Is God really with us? I mean, if he was with us, what would he let us go through this? As they're eating their quail and eating their manna a month ago, they walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. Last night there's a pillar of fire. This morning a cloud. Devil's going, come on man, you've been out here 40 days. It's been nothing but hard. Is God with you? He's not with you. If he was with you, you wouldn't be where you are right now. Let me know that he loves you, that he's with you. Jump. Because God said he's going to send and chase his angels after you so you don't even stub your toe. He didn't go there. Don't put God to the test. Don't put God to the test. I, I wonder if Satan's got us thinking about an area of deficiency right now so that we're not even seeing the abundance of his provision and we're asking ourselves and asking God, are you, are you really with me and for me? So what? So what if Jesus conceded? Nobody was there anyways. Who would have known? So what if he turned the stone to bread and had? I mean, I think he would have turned it into a baguette, right? <laughs> he had a baguette. So what if he had bowed? No one would have seen it, just a nod, didn't really mean it. So, so what if he had jumped and Gabriel and the band of angels snatched him up before he hit the ground? Couldn't he still go to the cross and die? What's the answer to that? Mm-hmm, could have. But here's what he couldn't have done. He couldn't have died for us couldn't have died for you could have died for himself you and I could get crucified on a cross today it doesn't make a difference in anybody's life because what was required by God was a perfect sacrifice it makes all the difference for us today as we're wrestling with the really important question what do I do with the things that I feel guilty about And let's just acknowledge there's false guilt out there and there's real guilt and we get to that category. What do I do with that? It's a big deal. It's a big deal. Because it is game over if he concedes. The Bible says this. Jesus is our high priest who though he was tempted in every way that we are, Yet he never gave in, and that's why we can have the hope of not only sins forgiven, but guilt removed. So let's bring this thing home right now, and let's go to this whole thing of what do we do? What are the things we go to to deal with guilt? So am am I right? Does anybody go, okay, yeah, I think I've done that, or I'm doing that. Um, We try to just suppress them. We try to bury it, to cover them up, To work them off, somehow going, man, that was really bad, but I'm going to do some good things, I'm going to feel better, I'm going to do a better life, and that's going to erase those bad feelings, I'm going to have more good feelings than bad feelings, and as soon as I get more of good than bad, I'm going to be good. Some of us say, well, I'm just going to blame somebody else. It's not really my fault that I did that. Yeah, I did that, but it's not my fault. We pin it on someone else. we're, We're really good at this kind of... I don't know, what is it? it, it it's kind of like, um, we're, we're like fessing up, but it's like a, a fessing up of just what we think that person that we've wronged could handle. Now, I can't tell you how many times I've sat in a counseling meeting where somebody in the marriage fesses up. And it's like they're not fessing up. I mean, they're fessing to some of it, but not up. You know what I'm talking about? And then over time, it's like, oh, 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 then it comes out. Well, it didn't all come out because they were afraid. Man, if it all came out right now, this is like game over. But so we're dealing with guilt. I just say, I mean, I'm going to let a little of it out. And you find out there's still a little bit left. You don't know what to do with it. What are you doing with that? Well, here's the hope of this passage: that when we're dealing with guilty feelings because we've fallen into temptation, then our hope is to trust the one who didn't fall, to trust the one who resisted to the point of death. Trust in Christ. That's the hope. You actually can go to bed tonight with a clear conscience. Do you know what that's like? If you haven't had your sins forgiven in Christ, the answer is no, you don't know what that's like that you can go to bed tonight with a conscience that has been wiped clean if we confess our sins the bible says god is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all the junk of our past from all unrighteousness that's the, like that's the no-brainer first step turn to christ admit what you've done Ask him to forgive you. Believe that when he died on the cross, it was for you, and that he lived a perfect life and resisted temptation for you. Do that. That's a starting point. That's like the starting point. And then there's a whole bunch of us go, but I did that. Keep turning, keep trusting. Keep turning, keep trusting. When the enemy brings it back or a circumstance brings it back, just, I don't know, maybe you've never taken judo class, but you're going to start doing judo this week. You didn't know that. You're going to learn judo right now. Here's what it is. The guilty feeling comes. Maybe you saw a person. Maybe it just kind of came into your mind. He's really good at the COD kind of return thing. And you're thinking about, it. here comes that guilty feeling and there's the, the great danger is to let it just rest right here. Yeah, I did that. I'm really bad. You just, here's judo. You take that guilt and you do whoosh and you take it right to the cross. Take it right to the cross, right? I did, but thank you, Jesus, that you lived a perfect life and that you died for that crap in my life. And I'm not gonna let you bring it back to me because Jesus died on the cross. He went all the way to the cross for that. He experienced separation on the cross. My God, why have you forsaken me? So I could have a relationship and I'm not gonna let you bring the junk of my past to break this relationship where I say, I don't think God could love me. And that's where a lot of us are. God knows not only what you did, but why you did what you did. He knows what you're doing right now, what you're thinking right now. And his love for you hasn't changed an iota. He loves you. And the guilt has an opportunity to continue to drive us away, drive us away. So I was on a bathroom project a couple weeks ago. And the, the women in my house said, we've got to get rid of the mirror. I'm thinking the mirror looks pretty good to me. Do we really have to? Get, yeah, we've got to get rid of the mirror. All right. This mirror is like glued on the wall. I can't like unscrew it. I can't just lift it off the nail. How do you get a mirror that's glued on the I don't know. You Google it, right? That's what I did. So Google said, get some shims. So I said, oh, I got some shims. These are kind of cool shims because they're plastic and they don't split or anything. And it said this, just start wedging the shims around the edge of the mirror. Just wedge them. So I was doing that. And like nothing was happening. So I thought, well, I'll just kind of wedge them a little more. So I start tapping, start tapping, start tapping, start tapping, start tapping. I mean, it's just, It was one of these, Really? pretty thin you see that really thin and then all of a sudden I tapped one more time and went, it went it's separated separated and that's that's what he's trying to do with guilt and with temptation is to separate us from the God who loved us he's, he's bringing this life of a better life today thinking that we can have that when all, all that he's doing is he's He's separating us from the God who gives life today. And that's what Jesus was so clear about. This wasn't about bread. This wasn't about the kingdoms. This wasn't about a free fall. He was about his father. And he wasn't going to let the lie drive a wedge between he and God. Man, that's why we got to keep resting in Christ. Today, this week, tomorrow, when you head back to school, when you go to the office, when you're doing life with maybe a spouse that doesn't believe Jesus or a family that's like they don't want anything to do with him, that you go back and you rest in Christ and you fight off temptation and you ask Jesus, give me more and more of your spirit so that every day in all kinds of ways, I keep going back to where's it written? What does the Bible say? And I can more and more say, it's written. And I remind myself, I don't live on bread alone. I don't live on bread alone. I'm secured who I am because I believe I'm God's son. I'm God's daughter. I I say, you know what? I I don't worship and serve anyone else. I'm not going to serve myself. I'm not going to bow to anything for personal gain. I've got everything I need in Christ. I'm not bowing down, and I'm not jumping. I'm not going to put God to the test because I'm wondering if he's still with me and for me. I've got the cross in my rearview mirror and I know that answer. I know that answer. So today, it's your choice what you do with your guilt. Jesus says, give it to me. I'll set you free. It's your choice how you're going to live with temptation the rest of your life, this day, Tomorrow, Jesus says, rest in me. Fight in my strength. Let's pray. So, Father God, we love you. We pray for those who right now don't believe that they actually could be forgiven. Lord, would you grant them faith to believe that they can find forgiveness through the one who resisted, not just the temptations over 40 days, but to every day of his 33 years here on this earth, all the way to the cross. Grant them faith. And Lord, just there's some of us. we've just lost our way. We're on shortcuts. We're dealing with concessions, and we need your grace. We want to rest in you, Christ. We want to know more about you. We want to experience your love every day through your spirit. And we pray, Lord, that you'd fill us with your spirit. And that in doing so, you would give us security and peace and strength and perspective in the wilderness that we may be in right now. Encourage us in Christ. Put us on our feet in Christ. Give us hope for the future in Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you did not spare your own son, but with him you promised to give us all things. Help us to believe that today. Amen.